morning, everyone. I don't know if you've been keeping track, but uh, we are now in Galatians 3, and we're going to try and finish up Galatians 3 today, uh, from 19 all the way through to 29. Uh, this is message number 10 in Galatians, and we're not through chapter 3 yet. So I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. This is a dense book, and there's a lot going on in Galatians, and we've been working very methodically through it, nine sermons so far, just to get to the middle of chapter 3. And uh, we're going to finish off three, we'll get through four, we'll finally get to five, which I know everybody's trying to get to five, right? Galatians 5, you're trying to get to the fruit of the Spirit and all that good stuff. But we'll get there, don't worry. And um, there might be another ten sermons in Galatians, but all of it is good, okay? Like, it's all good, so it's God's Word. And uh, I'm actually going to read the text ahead of time. This Normally I talk a little bit and then read the text, but I'm going to start off by reading the text, Galatians 3, 19 to 29, so that you can see the question that Paul is asking rhetorically and understand where we're going in the sermon as we've been talking about the gospel and the law, faith and works. And Paul begins in Galatians 3.19, he says, and maybe the obvious question, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of God. So there's a lot going on in there, okay? Even as I read it, and as you see it up there on the screen, and you can concentrate on the words, you're thinking, what? I can't even follow what Paul is saying there. And, and it is difficult, as I've mentioned. Paul's very passionate while he's writing this letter. It's one of the first letters that he ever wrote. He hasn't really got into his pattern of, of writing and argument yet. And he's just banging things down here for the Galatians, kind of a sentence at a time, encapsulating whole concepts and ideas. And we're going to unpack it. Uh, very simply in three stages, and we're going to look to Romans, where Paul expands on all these ideas. And so we're going to get a little insight from Romans, which he wrote later, a little few more chapters and a little more time to explain these things. But you remember when your children, for those of you that have children out there, most of you now, because Sunday school's exited, uh, you know, you remember when your child learned that question, why? Do you remember that season that that came up and they, they learned that word and that question, Why? And, like, they couldn't stop using it. It was the question that was asked of everything. Okay, it's time to eat. Why? Well, because you're hungry, it's time to eat. It's time to go to the potty. Why? Well, that's an even more obvious question. Um, 
or answer. But you know, it's, they ask that question, why, why? We're, you know, gotta go to school, why? Gotta do this, why? You know, and it's important that we ask why. It aids in survival, right? It, it may be true that our child doesn't need to know why they are told not to leave your side and run across the street, right? You can just say, when we're walking down the sidewalk, the rule is, the law is, you just don't leave my side and you never go out into the street. And they don't need to know why at that age, right? They just need to know not to do it. You know, that they will be struck by a car. That's the why. But then as they grow older, it helps. It helps their survival. It helps our survival, not just to know the rule, but to know the why of the rule. So eventually, when your children are young, you don't really explain to them, you know, why they don't cross the street or why they don't go out without you or all those things. But then as they get older, you you have to start to explain to them the why. Well, this is why that's a rule. This is why that 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 is needed so that you don't get hit by a car or so that something dangerous doesn't happen to you. And they need to hear and understand the good reasons behind the rule. The rule isn't just arbitrary, but there's a good reason for it. And then your children are no longer simply following instructions blindly, but they understand that there are values and principles behind the rules that they are following. But we don't start necessarily with the values and the rules when we have very little children because they don't understand them. And so we just give them the rule and expect them to obey it. And at first, our, our parental rules seem very arbitrary to them, right? It's like, like, why can't I eat the whole pound of chocolate right now? Like, are you just, you're just trying to spoil my fun? You know, why can't I stay up all night? Why do I have to wear a helmet? You know, why do I have to share my things? Why do I have to say thank you? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I have to do chores? Right? When our children sort of confront us on these rules, you know, they might even think that they're kind of self-serving, You know, you don't want me to eat all the chocolate because you want some, right? You want me to do chores because that's less work for you to do. You want me to go to school so I'm out of the house for seven hours, right? (laughs) So to your kids, they can think, these rules of yours are all strangely convenient for you, right? But, you know, you don't want me, you know, something about the child under these rules starts to think, you know, you don't want me to have fun, you know, you don't want me to share because you like other kids better, you know, like, this is arbitrary, you know, you, and, and some of those things are true, right? We do want them out of the house, and we do want them to vacuum and do their own laundry because it's helpful to us, you know, but, but that's not the real reason why we have the rules. The house rules that we have, the social rules that we have in society, the legal rules that we have in civilization are in place for our own benefit. And we need to protect ourselves and we need to strengthen ourselves and we need to learn humility and we need to learn the value of other people and learn how to express gratitude and, and learn how to be loving and all these things. The rules aren't arbitrary, at least good rules aren't. And the constraints of the rules give way to freedom of action once the values behind the rules are properly adopted, right? Like, once our kids understand the values and the principles behind the rules, then they have all sorts of freedom in in their behavior once they understand those principles. But until they understand those principles, the rules constrain them. And they constrain them for their protection and for their training and for their good. So now I just want you to keep that parental analogy in mind because our text is very humbling and I'm I'm warning you ahead of time, you're going to be humbled by this text because the reality is we are those children and we need the law. And our flesh will rebel against that very idea. 
I can imagine people now listening to this sermon on the podcast who are maybe non-believers, and their hearts will immediately rebel to the condescension that I am calling adults children, or that, that there is somehow a reality that we have to humble ourselves because we don't know better for ourselves, but that is the reality. And so this sermon and this message really requires humility. Even though Paul doesn't mention humility at all here, your hearts and my heart has to be humbled before the word of God in this. Because just like all of our kids, the people that Paul is speaking to and writing to in Galatians have basically asked that question rhetorically, or Paul's going to answer it. Because he has said, faith, not law. Christ, not law. Right? Hope and promise, not law. And so the natural question then that we all start to begin to ask after two chapters of this is, why then the law? Why do we have a law then, Paul? If you keep saying that it doesn't do anything and it's been nothing but death and hopelessness for us, why does God give us the law? What does, what does the law do for us, especially now for Christians on this side of the cross? In the fullness of the age of Christ, what was the law for? What is it for today? And if we don't understand why the law was given, it can kill us. That's what Paul's been talking about. If you don't understand the purpose of the law and you misuse the law, the law will kill you. The law is a curse and it leads to death. And so we have to understand what the reason is. If we don't understand why it was given, it can kill us or leave us helpless. And Paul said in Romans 9.32 that the reason Israel stumbled into destruction was not that they didn't pursue the law, but that they pursued it in the wrong way. Pursuing a law of righteousness did not attain it, he says, because they pursued it by works. From works and not from faith. In the effort of the flesh instead of in the power of the Holy Spirit. So if we pursue the law wrong or we misunderstand its purpose, it can kill us. And Paul gives three reasons for the law in this text. And I think from the three that he gives us, we can understand why we needed and still need the law. If we make the right use of it, the law is a tremendous blessing. Remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who keeps the law. You know, David said that the law was like honeycomb, sweeter than anything. Psalm 119, go and read that massive Psalm 119, all about the goodness of the precepts of God. Okay, the law is good if we understand it properly. And so Paul doesn't want us to pursue the law to our death, but he wants us to use the law as it's meant to lead us to life. So our key verses out of what I read is going to be 19, 22, and 24, where Paul says as briefly and as plainly as he can what the law is for, and we're going to depend on Paul's letter, as I said, to the Romans a fair bit to expand on that text. And so you could put your finger in your Bible at about Romans 4 or 5, if you have your Bible with you, because we're going to switch back to 4, 5, 6, 7 in Romans at various points. So Paul writes very passionately here to the Galatians, but also briefly. And he packs a lot of very large theological truths into a few sentences. And we're going to look at what Paul says here in Galatians and in Romans to see the detail of what he's pointing towards. So right off the bat, the first thing Paul says in verse 19 in terms of answering the question, why the law? He says it was added because of transgressions. So... Until the seed would come to whom the promise was made. And then he says, having been ordained through angels by agency of a mediator. Right off the bat, you can ask me about that later, okay? I'm not going to deal with that. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. And then later on, he talks about how a mediator is for two people, but God is only one. 
there are about 300 interpretations as to what that means. Um, I have my idea, and uh, it does make sense. And so if you want to talk to me about that later, it's not the part of this sermon. So I just, I'm putting those aside for you because I know they're in there and they're difficult verses, but we're not going to deal with them today. But he says, as far as why the law, it was added because of transgressions. So the law was added because of sin. And now this probably doesn't mean what you think it means. When you read that, you think people were sinning and doing horrible things, and so the law was added to try to straighten people out. That's how we naturally think, right? When we hear the phrase, the law was added because of transgressions, or the law was added because of sin. You think, well, I make rules because my kid is a little sinner, and I have to give him rules to stop him from doing that. That's not what Paul, he, Paul will get there. That is one of the reasons the law was given, but that's not what he means here. Right? That's not wrong, but it's just not what Paul means in this first case. Paul's actually explaining the purpose of the law sort of one step before we get to that point of holding people accountable or restraining their behavior. Paul is actually saying that the law was added so that people would even know that they are sinning and in a way to even produce or exaggerate or increase sin. So the first thing is the law revealed sin. And let's peek back to Romans for help where Paul writes in Romans 4.15. He says, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. So that makes sense, right? The first purpose of the law is that if there is no law, then I didn't break it. You know, or perhaps even more profoundly, if I am breaking the law, I don't really own up to the fact that I'm breaking the law until that law breaking is exposed by being confronted with it. You have to show me the law in order for me to admit that I'm a lawbreaker. You know, I might be breaking the law and know that I'm breaking the law, but until the law actually comes and shows me, then there was no violation. And so thinking about the parenting example again, our children... This is a shocker to all you parents out there, and it'll be a bigger shocker to those that you just are having kids in the future. Our children are born as little lawbreakers, right? They have wicked, law-breaking hearts, okay? It is true. And once they learn to talk and run around and get their hands into things, they will look you in the eye and tell you how much they love and trust you until you tell them not to touch the hot stove. And then we will test whether they really trust you or not. Right? Your kid can look you in the eye and say, Mommy, Daddy, I love you. I trust you. Okay, you need to go to bed at 8 o'clock. I do not trust you. <laughs> you are steering me wrong. That stuff I said about how much you love me and I love you and all this trust that we have, we don't have it. Right? 8 o'clock is way too early. Okay? So that's, that is the reality. Right? Do they really trust you? Do they trust you enough to do what you tell them? Suddenly the rule or the law, when it comes along, reveals what's really going on in their hearts. They think they love you, they think they trust you, but then you give them a curfew and they realize they don't trust you as much as they thought. But it takes the rule, it takes the law to reveal their little law-breaking hearts for what they really are. By demanding the obedience of faith, then, the law exposes hidden distrust. Or better put, it exposes even their rebellion that they really want to choose for themselves what is right and wrong for themselves. But until the law comes along, the transgression of their little law-breaking hearts isn't apparent. Their rebellion isn't exposed until the law shows them that they are rebellious. And that's us, right? Our rebellion against God, our decision that we decide what is right and wrong, is not exposed in our heart until the law shows up and says, this is what's good for you, this is what 
is right and proper. This is what is righteous. This is what your God says. Do you trust me? And the law says in our hearts, really we don't, if we're honest, because we want to do what we want to do. And then not only that, the law doesn't just expose sin. Paul even says it increases sin. In Romans 5.20, if you just flipped ahead a little bit, it says the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Always got to read that second half, but, but the first part is that the law came so that transgression would increase. And we've seen this in our children too, haven't we? Right, if we're honest, and in ourselves. You know, the drama of the whole human race and our relationship to God actually plays itself out in every human life. Right? When you, you take a little kid and you watch them grow up from the time they're a baby until they're a toddler and then kindergarten and going to school and they get to be 8 or 9, 10, 12, 16, right? you can see the drama of God's relationship with humanity and God's relationship with Israel and God's relationship with yourself. It plays itself out not just through history. It plays itself out in every human life because we are born little lawbreakers. And we need the law to constrain us. But there is a time when we have to learn what lies behind the law so that we can actually follow and live by the principles and the values behind the law. And what's true of children is true of us, right? And when the law comes along, it doesn't just expose the transgression, as I said. It actually causes them to increase. When the house rules get pinned up on the fridge and those little law-breaking hearts and minds begin to realize that there are authorities to which they are accountable then the rebellion doesn't decrease when the rules come along. The rebellion increases when the rules come along. Rebellion expands when it encounters the law. Look what Paul's own humble admission is in Romans 7, 5. He says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is the reality. Apart from the Holy Spirit, our hearts are pathetically self-centered, right? We are selfish creatures who want what we want. And so when we run into a law that is trying to conform us to humility or to generosity or to compassion or to self-sacrifice, we just resist that law all the more. When we encounter the law, you can feel it come up in in your heart. And that's why I said this sermon requires humility because our flesh rises up in the face of the reality that there's an authority that we're accountable to. How dare anyone say there's an authority I'm accountable to? And you can see it, parents, and your kids, right? You know what I'm talking about. This plays itself out. You put those rules up on the fridge. You tell them what they need to do. You can just see their little fist clench, right? And their heart harden. And they squint at you. And they just think, oh boy, this is going to be a fight. So Paul says the law came along because of transgressions. The law came along to show that we have a transgressing heart. And not only that, the law came along to actually increase transgressions because we rebel all the more, right? Sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, Paul says in Romans 7, 8, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. He says here the law or the commandment is to not covet, not desire what other people have. But as soon as you told me that, I wanted what other people had all the more. You want to see the human heart in action? Just give a pair of four-year-olds one toy. right? Or even better, give a couple of four-year-olds two slightly different toys. Whatever one they have, they want the other. And when they get that one, they don't want that one. They don't want to give up the one they have. They want both. Or if they do give up the other one, when they get the other one, they realize actually they did want the other one in the first place. It doesn't matter which toy they have, they want the other one. 
right? We see this in our children. Their hearts are transparent before us. No matter what we have, we covet more. And Romans 7.13 really clarifies this proper use of the law for us. Paul says, did that which is good, which is the law, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin working death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So Paul says this is why the law came along because of sin. It had to show sin to be sin and through the law itself actually show that I was sinful beyond measure, that I'm utterly depraved. I can do nothing on my own. I am covetous and selfish and the law simply proves it. So Paul says, look, we are sick. To use another analogy, we're sick. And it's not the doctor that made us sick, God. And it's not the diagnostic tool, the law, that made us sick. We already were sick with sin. But the doctor gave us a scanner, the law, so that we could see our sickness for what it was. God gave us the law so that sin could be seen as sin, so that we could see there is no hope in our sinfulness, that it's terminal. But don't blame the MRI scanner, right? Don't blame the diagnostic tool. The problem lies within us, not in the law. And so if you're here today, faithful Christian or staunch atheist or undecided agnostic, it doesn't matter. We all need the law for this purpose. We all need the diagnosis of the law, and there's no point blaming the law. It didn't make us sick. It just told us how sick we were. The law did not create the distrust and the selfishness and the rebellion in our heart. The law simply showed us that we were rebellious, untrustful people. And so we have that diagnosis. And the law was never meant to be a means by which we would be counted righteous, only to testify against our unrighteousness. In fact, in Deuteronomy 31, when Moses is given the law, He's given the law for the second time now to the people. Moses actually says to the people of Israel, before they've even really had a chance to get going on this whole law thing, he says, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, and may it be there for a witness against you, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Okay, so right from the beginning, Moses knew that this was the purpose of the law. The law is to show you how stubborn and rebellious a people you are. He really was kind of cynical about his hopes in Israel. But there is another purpose of the law in verse 22. In verse 22, it says that the law shut up everyone under sin and kept people in custody. In verse 23, kept us in custody under the law. And so this is connected to the first purpose, so it'll be a little shorter to explain. But here's a new element here that Paul's expanding on that is good for us to see. In one sense, Paul is is just saying in a new way what we already said in verse 19, that the, the law holds us accountable to our sin. But there's another thing to notice here, that that there's a time reference with each of these purposes of the law. In verse 19, the time reference was, it was added because of transgressions, until the seed would come to whom the promise was made. And then here in verse 22 and 23, he says that the law shut everyone up and kept us in custody, but he says, so that the promise of faith in Christ could be given, and then he says, and up to the faith that was later to be revealed. You realize in all three cases, there's a time reference. That the law has come along for a period of time for a purpose. And so there's a clear sense in this second use of the law that the law was accomplishing something in a time as well. That something had to be done about our sin during the unfolding of God's plan of redemption in Jesus. That the law was somehow a measure that was waiting for Jesus to happen. 
And so there's just two quick points on that. This is where we get our, our natural understanding of the purpose of the law from that I started out with, right? That, that even as the law increases our sin or our rebellion, we realize that the law also contains or restrains our sin in terms of our behavior. And I don't even have to use a kid example for this one, right? We know this is how the law works, don't we? Right? We don't usually, I'll say usually, we don't usually drive at 140 kilometers per hour on the way to Toronto, right? We don't usually go that fast. I'm not saying not all of us don't, but usually we don't go 140 kilometers an hour on the way to Toronto. Not because of our righteousness, right? Not because we are naturally righteous, good, law-abiding citizens, but we do it because of the law. Right, The law restrains it. We do it because if we're driving 140. We know we might see something that we don't want to see in our rearview mirror. And so the law comes along and restrains our behavior and holds us accountable. So that needed to happen, right? It needed to shut us up. It had to hold us in custody until Christ could come. But then on another level, when God gave the moral law, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law, he very quickly, after he gave the moral law, gave us the ceremonial and the sacrificial law. The laws that would stand as an atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel, right? And this is less relevant to us today, but it's important for us to understand in terms of its reflection of the nature of God. Okay, understand what I'm saying here. This God is just, and God cannot simply ignore sin because he's a just God. Right? He, he can't just pretend that sin isn't happening. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate answer to God's perfect justice combined with his perfect love. But in the meantime, before Jesus came, God had to have a solution for sin. His, the law held Israel and, and really held the world in custody until Jesus could arrive by permitting, in a way, very mysteriously, for God to be patient. In Romans 2, 4, it says, Do you not think, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God had to find a way to be patient for thousands of years for the sins of the people, waiting for Jesus to come. And the law shut us up or held us in custody for that time. In Romans 9.22, it says, What if then God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He said, Paul's saying, look, you are all destined for destruction, but God has withheld his wrath. What of it that he is sovereign to do that? Thank God that he is sovereign to withhold his wrath on vessels prepared for destruction. And so the law, very mysteriously, and I won't go into it, but it shut us up or it held us in custody for a time as a means for God's final judgment to be withheld until Jesus could come. The ceremonial laws of purification and the atoning laws of sacrifice held God's wrath in check, so to speak, and held us in custody until Christ could come. The law was always pointing forward to Jesus who was to come, but it had to hold us for a time. And that's the third purpose that Paul tells us of the law in verse 24. He says he, in verse 24, it says the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. So there's at least a hundred sermons worth of ways that the law points us forward to Christ. Just that idea that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ, that concept. You could go back now to the law if I had you know, 
40 or 50 hours. We could go back to the law and we could go, th- I could go through the law and we could just look at all the ways that it was a tutor that led us to Christ. Right? Because it just keeps pointing us towards Christ. About how the law is able to train and able to shape and to guide and to reveal the character of God and to show us His plan to redeem through Jesus. You could and, and you might even this week spend, uh, well, this week and the rest of your life, exploring the blessing of the law as a tutor and a teacher and a guide. You know, in, in the briefest possible overview, it could be described this way. The moral law teaches us about our sin and our guilt, and to some extent it teaches us about God's holiness, that God would give us this holy moral law. And our separation from God, the fact that we cannot keep the law, and our need for cleansing and redemption, that's what the law teaches And then there's the ceremonial law that teaches us even more about God's holiness and the need that we have to be made clean and to be made pure in order to enter into his presence. And then you have the sacrificial law that teaches us that there is a way to be redeemed and a way to be rescued, a way for our sins to be atoned for and our guilt to be cleansed. And there is one who can justify us and qualify us before God. And when that perfect sacrifice eventually comes, there will be no more need for anything else to die because he will bring that atonement or that justification and redemption by conquering death and bringing life. So that's how the law is a tutor, very generally, very broadly, that points us and leads us to Christ. Now the law works like our house rules. It's kind of like that satisfying moment going back to our children when your children suddenly realize why you gave them the rules that you gave them, right? They hit an age eventually that I've experienced with my son. And for those of you with young kids, I'm just saying, wait, it gets better, okay? It gets better. There is that age when they realize the, the value and the principle behind the rules. And they, and they realize that you've been training them not to follow the letter of the rule, but to act by the spirit of the rule. And they suddenly see the purpose. And they say, oh, now I understand why we always had to share. I get it now why you were always telling me to share toys with other kids and to share my lunch or to give to those in need or to be generous or to be gracious. Now I understand why there was a rule, right? Now I understand why you had me come home at a certain time every night. I get it. You know, it's, it's that point in the movie, and it's an older audience, so I know you'll bear with me on this. It's that point in the movie when the karate kid finally understands why Mr. Miyagi made him wax the car and paint the fence, right? He's waxing the car, and he's painting the fence, and he just thinks these are the stupidest chores and rules. Why is Mr. Miyagi giving me these rules, right? And then he starts to teach him karate, and he understands waxing the car and painting the fence, the light bulb goes off. So young parents, trust me, there's a moment if you parent well. There's a moment when your kids, the light bulb comes on and they understand, now I get it, I I understand the rule. And then you get to say, you know what, now you don't have to follow the rule. Because you understand what the rule was leading you to. Right? And in a far more profound way, God says, here's the law, Israel. Israel. You guys have to learn how to not be pagans. You have to learn about your guilt. You have to learn what righteousness is. You have to learn what it means not to covet and to be generous and what a holy and righteous and loving God is. But once you've learned that, when you understand and you know me, it's not about following the rules. It's about having that relationship and being transformed by what Jesus Christ has done by the Holy Spirit. 
So Paul says here that the law is pointing us to Jesus Christ. And the word that Paul uses for tutor or guide here is, is the word from which we get the English word pedagogue. And you see, you know, peda in there, children, peda, like a pediatrician type of thing. So it's kind of a funny word, pedagogue. But in Paul's time, it referred to the household servant who was in charge of taking the children to school and making sure that they learned their lessons. Okay, it wasn't the teacher themselves. It was the household servant that took the child to school. It was the household servant that made sure they did their homework. They were not the teacher, but they guided the children to the teacher. And the law still works in that way for us. The Bible begins at Genesis, not Matthew. Okay, so there's much to be gained from a careful study of the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Or just start with reading carefully even the book of Hebrews. If you're kind of afraid of the Old Testament and the law, read the book of Hebrews very carefully because the book of Hebrews throws the light of the new covenant and it shines back into the shadows of the old covenant revealing the true meaning that's there. It's a fantastic book. I can't wait till we do Hebrews sometime. But then finally in the last three verses, Paul gives us the result that should come from the law accomplishing these three purposes. If it has convinced us and convicted us and prepared us and led us to Christ, then when faith comes, then we have all these results, verses 26 to 29. And I'll just read it again because this is what the end result is. This is to what end the law. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed yourself with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And this is one of those amazing identity in Christ verses. Paul spells out who we are as a result of our faith. We're all children of God by faith in Christ. We're clothed with Christ. We're one in Christ. We belong to Christ, and we're inheritors of the promise. And so the law came to show us our sin. It came to constrain us and to keep us in custody until the promise of Jesus could come. Ephesians says that we are by nature born as children of wrath. And we see that in our kids. And people don't like it when I say it, but it's true. Some of the best parenting lessons are right here in the law because our kids are born little lawbreakers. We are all born children of wrath and we are all born rebelling against God. We don't really trust him. We're we're breakers of the law and and without the schooling of the law, we can easily grow up to be much bigger lawbreakers. If our parents' laws, for those of us who had good parents who made good rules... If we didn't have those rules, we could have easily gone really bad. And honestly, I went pretty bad. And some of, us, some of you out there are thinking, I had good rules and I still went pretty bad. Because that's our nature, is to break the rule and to go bad. But the law constrains us. If we understand the law rightly and we use it for its purpose, then the law convicts us of the fact that we go pretty bad. And it convicts us of the fact that there's a holy God that has more for us if we trust him. And that there's a holiness that we can aspire to. And that God has brought that holiness and that righteousness and that justification to us, not by law keeping, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The law leads us to redemption and leads us to forgiveness and leads us to freedom in Jesus. Even cynical old Moses saw the day of Jesus coming. Right after he told those stubborn Israelites that I quoted back there in Deuteronomy they were hard-hearted and that they would rebel. 
He says later on in Deuteronomy 30, he says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then Jeremiah picks up on that prophecy in 31:33. He says, After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And then Ezekiel later on picks it up again in Ezekiel 36:26. He says, A new heart I will give you, says the Lord, and a new spirit I will put within you and I will take out your flesh of heart Take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. And then Paul announces it all in Romans 8, 4. He says that with Christ the day has arrived, sins are atoned for, and the spirit has been poured out, and that the just requirement of the law is fulfilled by those who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. This is the purpose of the law. So as we've gone through Galatians and Paul has said, you know, not the law, not works, not by the law, but by faith, not by works, but by Jesus, right? Not the, the working out of a, of a religion and trying really hard to be nice people, but by accepting what Christ has done for us to forgive us and to receive the Holy Spirit so that we can be transformed. After all of that, Paul says the law had a purpose, okay? Don't think that the law didn't have a purpose and don't think that the law wasn't good. The law was good. The law showed us exactly what we needed to be shown. The law teaches us exactly what we need to be taught. But best of all, the law points us, not at itself, but it points us to Jesus Christ. It says there is one coming who is going to justify you, going to qualify you, going to atone for all your sins. So that you don't have to try really hard to keep a law that's impossible to keep. But you can put your faith in Jesus Christ. And by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, the law will be fulfilled and you can be transformed. That there is hope to your little law-breaking hearts. That there is a solution to your sinfulness and your guilt. And that solution is Jesus Christ. So Paul says there is a purpose to the law. So, as I said at the beginning, whether you are a staunch Christian, whether you're an atheist, whether you are just sort of a don't-know agnostic, understand the purpose of the law. The law is good. And used rightly, it points us to Jesus Christ and saves us.